I'm here with Jamie Van Auken Schrum, M-L-I-S, and we'll discover what that acronym means. Usually I encourage my students not to use acronyms without first identifying and explaining or otherwise defining that acronym. I am violating my own rules. It's my prerogative. I do what I want to do. And I am excited to welcome you because you are almost my age now, which means that you have been imbued with great wisdom, experience, knowledge, greatness. Uh, the 80s greatness is within you, Jamie. And so I would like for you, though, to introduce yourself. Uh, tell us where are you from? What do you do? How did you get there? Uh, the short story, though, because we'll, we'll delve more into the specifics. As All we right. Mm -hmm. Once upon a time, I hatched out of my giant dinosaur egg in Maryland. And at the, at the tender age of six months, moved to the north side of Chicago to a little community called Vernon Hills that was once just farmland and now is urban sprawl and suburbia at its greatest. I lived there with my mother, who I think you've met, Dietrich, and father. I know that and, woman, I know that woman. <laughs> and brother Kurt, until I went to college, went to Arizona State in the beautiful city of Tempe and um, became a teacher out there, taught for a whopping semester before I returned home back to Vernon Hills and became a librarian and was very happy there. Got my fancy pants degree from Dominican University, the MLIS, the Masters of Library and Information Science, yes. And then, um, and then my mother and father came home from a wedding in North Carolina and they said, we've met this guy. <laughs> and we think he would like you and you would like him and you know what they were right so 12 years ago I moved to North Carolina and here I am we have a eight-year-old son named Wolf and a dog and a cat and a fish tank and a mortgage <laughs> this is why I love speaking with you though because there's a lot to unpack there I do think most Texans will empathize particularly in the Houston area with the idea of um, that used to be farmland, because I think that is a refrain that you can drive throughout the Houston metropolitan area and hear from any person over the age of 40, right? Which my students probably consider uh, seniors. Wait, wait a minute, let's not talk 40. I am forever 21. Right, right. <laughs> like the store in the mall. <laughs> right, right. Birthday anniversaries are celebrated. <laughs> But you may continue. Yeah, so, so, so things have changed. Um, and, and that's a, a, a fascinating uh, sort of conceptualization because we've had the uh, suburban sprawl and then urbanization. So people have said, oh, wait a second, I don't like driving. Or if you're in my, in my case, like you're not allowed to drive. So you've got public transportation, it's a lot easier to work in urban environments. So two things that come to mind immediately for, for questions, one, did you know where Tempe was? And, and within that, as people are considering going to college out of state, particularly for my students, they, they're already enrolled in an undergraduate or graduate program, but they may pursue other educational advancements out of the city, out of, out of the state. And that's in the Phoenix sort of uh, ETJ, extraterritorial jurisdiction. Was it the same as Phoenix? Was it different than Phoenix? Was Phoenix, I mean, what was this experience of going to college out of state? Did you, was it what you anticipated? What was different? What would you advise people before they do it? 
all of those things go? That was a lot of questions. <laughs> and false. No. Um, when I started my senior year of high school, I thought I would go to Vanderbilt University. I had put in my application. My parents were prepared to second mortgage the house. It would be rolling green grass and country music in my future. But in December of my senior year, my best friend Amanda said, you should come with me to Arizona where I had never been and uh, visit Arizona State University because that's where she was gonna go. And I stood there on the campus. And if you've never been, it is an amazing experience to stand right in the heart of that campus because it's just several blocks. There's no roads that go through it. It's like, I don't know, 10 square blocks. And when you're right in the heart of it, you're on this beautiful stretch of sidewalk called Palm Walk. Ooh. And it's just palm trees in both directions, as far as the eye can see. And on one end, okay, I guess you can see, but on one end you've got <laughs> this beautiful mountain called the Hayden Butte. And another uh, end has this huge, I don't know, it was like a, a gym or an athletic facility. You know, I never went in there, but it was beautiful. They had glass. And I thought to myself, I could do this. And so I did. It was just too beautiful not to go. Um, now, of course, Vanderbilt has the prestigious Peabody Institute. And I found out that when I enrolled at Arizona State, that the Peabody was number one for education in the country, but ASU was number four. So that was pretty good. <laughs> and my parents didn't have to mortgage the house again. So that was a win also. And it's a great campus. It's also, at the time, if, at least, you know, I, I wouldn't know for my business, but I, I think you all were number one for parking. Um, that it, you, had, you had quite a reputation. Uh, and so to be there with your, with your best friend, I, I think it is partying. I, I, do, I do believe that in that particular year, we were rated number one party school by Playboy magazine. I, After I got there and, uh, you know, went to class and attended lectures and forced everyone around me to study, we, we just dropped off the list altogether. Yeah, so yeah. that was my list. But well, uh, <laughs> I, I think it's apropos and timely that I've uh, collected my first plate from Flying Saucer in downtown Houston and it, and, and it says priorities. And, and I think we have to establish those, right? And I think a Playboy rating definitely trumps anything uh, with regard to US news or any of those other uh, sort of subjective and otherwise unverifiable rankings. So you went to the number one school, we'll just say that, right? Phrasing is, yes. Yes. you know, perception is reality and phrasing is important. So you went to the number one school, dot, dot, dot. And you went with your best friend and you all were roommates. We and so, were. Yeah, and so of course everybody envisions this being a magical scenario you had to get your stuff down there, right? So there was a road trip involved in this. Were there some challenges to moving out of state? Were there th some things that were unexpected? Well, that freshman year, my mom dug up a friend of my dad's. And so he lived in, in Phoenix, which is in the same- <laughs> You're from Illinois. I, I have to stop you there because after she dug him up to do whatever you're going to say, she probably took him to a polling station so that he could vote early and often. Well, that is the Chicago way. <laughs> well, anyway, we mailed all my stuff to his house. 
So when, when, when I arrived via airplane with my parents to campus, all my stuff was nicely boxed up and we just had to go with the rental car and pick it up in a hundred and mm degree heat and move it up to the second floor with no elevator. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was, it was an adventure living with my best friend for a year and sophomore year, we did not live together and we really didn't need to speak because we had said everything we needed to say. So our friendship then resumed junior year. <laughs> I think there are some interpersonal lessons and maybe there are some aspects of this though that you have taken into the workforce. So as that close proximity with people and now you're married and so you're in close proximity with uh, two children on a regular basis. Wait, no, just one one child. I, I, and I and Wolf, what do you classify Wolf? Is he a teenager now? He's not that old. <laughs> no, he has okay. he is very young. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so you have this close proximity, this daily interaction. Are there any professional lessons that you've taken from that as far as getting too familiar with your colleagues or sharing too much with colleagues or otherwise anticipating uh, human behavior? that isn't realized later on? Are there, are there some lessons from that? You know, I did learn a very important lesson and you'll never believe this, but it, I, I am not always right. <laughs> I don't believe that. I don't believe that. <laughs> and it took me a while to realize that the universe does not revolve around me and that sometimes my thoughts and opinions and ideas are just wrong. And it isn't until later in life, looking back and reflecting that I go, oh, whoops. Oh, well, <laughs> but you learn from it. <laughs> so I don't think I'm an easy person to live with. I don't believe that at all. I don't believe that. Hmm. Okay. You believe what you want. <laughs> I've never lived with you. And I think you're amazing. Thank you, thank you. I'm currently trying to get my parents to move from Illinois to North Carolina to be closer to us. And they lived with me a long time. And I think that's part of the reason why they are hesitant to move because I am perhaps not so easy to live with. <laughs> introspection, there's some, some time to uh, sort of learn lessons from the past and then apply those. Back to the Tempe question though, you were sure. in the city, right? And so I, I, I think to myself, when I came back from Japan and, and went to law school, sight unseen in Mississippi, I'd been to 49 states. I'm still at 49, unfortunately. Alaska continues to elude me. And I had an idea of Mississippi from my drives through on the way to Atlanta and the, and the coastal region, uh, visits to Jackson because I like state capitals. And Oxford, Mississippi was not any of those things. Uh, it was not Mississippi by any stretch of my preconceived notions or um, imagery. So again, with Tempe, you moved to this place from Chicago, which is on par with Houston. I'll say that. I'll say on par because we won't get into <laughs> rankings. And where would Playboy rank it? No, no, no. Right, right, right. <laughs> So you go to the number one school, dot, 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 and it's hot. So you mentioned temperature. So that's, that's an acclamation. Oh, that was a big thing. But I thought nothing of what it was going to be like. I was not prepared. I had no idea, you know, oh, oh now it's time to go to college. Oh, all right. I'll pack some stuff and then let's go. I had no, no idea of what lay ahead of me because I was so busy living in the moment 
that I wasn't planning for the future. So when I got there, I discovered, first of all, that most of the people that live in Arizona used to live in the Midwest. So I was surrounded by many of my own people. We were all Cubs fans. So that was great. <laughs> and then there's this whole, you know, Arizona, which you think cowboys and sure enough, there really were and are cowboys in Arizona and First Nation people. And it was great to be a sponge and soak up all their culture and more importantly, eat all their food. You get all the salsa. All the salsa. Yes. <laughs> if, there, if there was a Mexican restaurant with telenovela going on in the corner, you would find me trying their sopes. Right. <laughs> So, that, so this, your positive experience was in part due to, rather than, I guess, even managing expectations, you went in without preconceived notions. And so you were able to absorb and appreciate without a sense of pre-existing judgment or, or anticipation of what should be. Are, yes. Are there, are there, yes. Are there any, are there any work lessons from this? Are there any uh, any future life choices that you went in and, and caught yourself saying, sort of looking in retrospect saying, oh, you know, I've made this mistake before. I'm not always right. And I should go in without preconceived notions, maybe like in a first job or a job transition where you're like, you know, if I came into this job scenario or came into this relationship, professional or personal, without a sense of projecting my values, beliefs, or other ideology on the other person or situation or environment. Any, any of those tips? Well, when I got there and I enrolled in my classes, I had this rather insane idea that if I took all my classes and was done by 10 a.m., then I would have the whole rest of the day to have fun. Do you know how many college students take 6 a.m. classes? None. So by the time I was done with my class, everyone else was going to class. And when I was ready for bed, they were ready to party. So, um, you know, that was, that was a good lesson to learn that how I wanted things to flow on my agenda because I'm a morning person, wasn't gonna work with the rest of the student population. <laughs> Hard to make friends. And by the second semester I had fixed that. But sometimes things don't work out on your timetable. And I think that's very important in the workplace. If I find if I want something done, I just do it myself. <laughs> if you want it done right, you do it. Involving other people sometimes takes too long for my timetable. I think that's important. What about, you know, you mentioned this timeline. I think people have that in their career. So I'm gonna jump ahead. And when you moved to North Carolina, you did not work in a library, despite the fact that you probably have better credentials than senior librarians in your area. Well, I got my first library job when I was 15. And then the degree from Arizona State was elementary education with a focus in math and a minor in English literature. And so 
I had a lot of practical in the library experience and a lot of fancy pants degrees, and I could not get a library job to save my life. So for five years, I put in applications and I went on interviews and I ended up working for those five years as a part-time bank teller. And I got really good at math <laughs> and I um, did not enjoy it, but my People skills, I think, really improve because when you are customer service and you are working with people every day, you really learn how to get along. So that was rough. The um, county that I worked for had had a hiring freeze, and so they simply weren't hiring anybody. So I am, I've been there now seven years, and it's wonderful. And maybe I appreciate it a little extra because it took so long. <laughs> And there's a, we have a discussion in class and I remind my students about the old German saying, man plans God last. And this idea that most of the lessons that I've had in life, particularly the annoying, time-intensive, sort of stressful lessons, have then later come back to support me. So, for example, in my current role, I am one of a handful of people in the country, probably, who have this level of legal and procurement experience, right? That the two don't generally intermingle. And so you were, were building your customer service skills and now you create video content for your library system. You do a lot of things with initiatives. And maybe if you just gotten a job right off the bat, you wouldn't have been as enthusiastic about being able to follow your passion and do what you're skilled at because it would have come naturally. It would have been almost assumed. I mean, do you think that's something you've considered or? I think you're very right. And also, North Carolina is very different than Illinois and Arizona, which felt like the Midwest, a little Southwest. Uh, North Carolina, we have a lot of people that have lived here all their lives, and they have their own culture. And so to work customer service with them, I really learned what people here value and what's important to them. Vinegar pork barbecue, yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, no, not the vinegar pork barbecue. We'll, we'll take a hard pass and keep that, oh. keep that Texas and Kansas City brisket going. Texas brisket any day of the week. So it's, it, it is different, the culture. But then you got to hone your math skills. And, and here's something that I find fascinating. And, and you might have learned this in your, in your master's program as, as they were sort of preparing you to go back out in the workforce. Maybe, maybe they didn't emphasize this. It seems like there are a lot of quantitative analytical skills and technology skills built into an MLIS that would prepare you to effectively work not only in a library, but in a number of government type roles. Did, were, were there any discussions about other roles where you could apply this degree in learning? Not that I remember, but you're very right that it would apply to many other things, especially the organizational skills. What was wrong with my professors? They should have they branched out. They probably were on a lot of breaks. They were not the hashtag hardest working man in government. That is probably true. Ah, uh, they needed the hardest working man in government. You're right. You're right, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I wonder about that. When you think about building these skills, do you sort of have personal teachable moments when you go out and you're grocery shopping and you see in the grocery store, I could be, I could be making all this up to correct me if I'm, if I'm completely mistaken, but you're in the grocery store and you see um, bread next to peanut butter and you think to yourself, this is probably not the categorization 
or inventory control that I would do. Or you go to um, a bank and you start looking at how they organize their ledgers. And you think, you know, extracting information would be a lot more reliable and efficient if we exercise XYZ filing or, or data management system. I mean, were, or, did you have any of those experiences? Do you experience that on a daily basis where you look at things, not just on the road, right? Because I, I, I'm sure regularly you look at, on, at, at your fellow drivers and say, you do not have a master's degree. In your lane. Well, maybe it is because I am lazy. I organize things of how much movement, the economy of motion that is going to go through to do things. So if I'm going to go upstairs to get the vacuum cleaner, you know, I'm going to bring the laundry up with me because I don't want to make two trips. And so I've done a lot of things in my life where I see people running around and I think, well, that's why they're so thin because they haven't come up with a plan of action so that they only have to go one place once as opposed to 20 places, 20 times. Every pro has a con, every con has a pro. So, so in our laziness, and I, and I will join you in this, that we would much rather be enjoying some brats and schnitzel at the Berghof than uh, oh. running or something silly like that. Um, why are you running on that thing? Just sit down and have a meal. Uh, but you we should just eat our way across the 50 states. What do they have in Alaska? Salmon? We should go. We need to go. We need to get, get all these places. But I think about your, your point about economy of motion. I think, you know, in, in the supply cycle world, you've got aspects such as heat mapping and where you can analyze where people have the most uh, movement and how that impacts a number of aspects, right? So the more trips you make up and down the stairs, the more opportunities you have to trip on said stairs. And then we've increased the, the frequency probability of risk, maybe not the severity, but the probability or, or risk of harm because of these multiple trips. Um, if you ran on petroleum as opposed to on schnitzel, cookies, all, all good Van Auken, Trum, Biedenfeld people do, then how much petroleum would you be expending with this inefficiency of process were you not as thoughtful in planning on the front end? So I, I think, the, I mean, there are definitely lessons in planning. What about lessons learned? Are there any lessons learned that you sort of take back from your daily work where you say, wow, I really, again, going back to your college experience, I used to think I was always right. Now I recognize that I can, even, even the perfect Jamie Van Auken-Shrum can be improved in some manner or fashion, what I mean, what what are some of the processes that you use to, to perform introspective lessons learned? Oh my goodness! Well, you know, I like to talk. I don't know if you're aware of this, but I like to talk. And sometimes when I retell a story, where other people, of course, are the villains, I realize maybe just maybe I'm not quite the hero of my own story all the time. That I'm. I can be a little villainous or thoughtless as well. So in, in my talking and sharing with other people in my communication, I realize, oh, oh no, now, now I have to really spin this story. Maybe I need to exaggerate. Maybe I need to even lie to cover my tracks because I, I, don't, I don't come off looking so good. And that's that aha moment. Oh, well, maybe next time I'll 
do things a little differently. Maybe next time I'll be a little bit kinder or more thoughtful and just try to be a better person. Well, th this is an instance where we, we investigate the idea of subject matter experts where uh, you would not lie, you would hire an attorney to advocate on your behalf, exercise that zealous advocacy for your personal truth, and then you would never have to apologize again. Right. Be well, you know, truly, I want my exaggerating and my storytelling to make the story more wonderful. And so really, I don't need to tell too many stories about myself. I should just tell other stories, preferably about other people. I will start telling stories about you. Uh oh, <laughs> we will leave we'll leave that in New Orleans. Um, I do recall a visit uh, to my dorm. But anyway, that's that, that was that was a funny one. And uh, hopefully uh, Miriam Warren is not still traumatized by that by that meeting of your mother uh, when we were getting ready to go out on the town. Um, but either way, this is a lesson in locking your doors. Um, so, oh, my aunt is here. Hello, hello. Uh, <laughs> but I, I wonder about these things. What are some of the quantitative and qualitative lessons that you learned in your, in your graduate programs? Oh, a Dominican, oh. Well, one of the very interesting things about the program that I was in at Dominican was there was a big focus on, are you working in a library right now? Or are you a, a full-time full student? And there were two different programs going on because if you were working in a library right now, then the things that you were learning in class needed to be immediately applied in your library. For example, Librarians, we order stuff left and right. We're big shoppers. We want all the newest books. We want everything. But part of that is also then we have to get rid of things to make space for the new things. So an assignment was go to your library and look at a crowded shelf. What can you get rid of? And so we would do that and figure out how to run reports that would show, well, this item hasn't circulated in 10 years, we probably don't need this anymore. Or this item has an inch of dust on it. We probably don't need it anymore. Or this item was obviously eaten by a dog and the other half is missing. Do we need half a book? Maybe we should just get rid of this whole shelf. Versus the people who are not in a library setting who would talk about the theory of how to weed a collection without ever getting their hands on it. It's, it's the difference between practicing what you're learning and, and just being cerebral and thinking about what you're learning. Does that make sense? The hands-on approach is to me so valuable. So if you're taking a course where you can apply it in your real life, even if it's just a small snippet of it, it's gonna make a bigger impact on how you remember the course and how you remember the material. And it might even change who you are. Because I tell you, if I look around my house and I see something with three inches of dust on it, I probably don't love it because I haven't picked it up and it's got to go. Magic art of tidying up. Right. <laughs> so does that answer your question or did I go way off track? You just tell me to get no, back on this is, this, That's the fun thing about these candid conversations. We extract knowledge from diverse uh, sort of spokespersons from different industries, different backgrounds. Um, and I'm hearing a lot in what you were talking about of, of some of the similar practices of inventory controls and value assessment, right? Identification and how 
to some degree, you can have a negative in that with the endowment effect, right? So behavioral economists look at something called the endowment effect and that ownership um, explains why my office looks like a hoarder's heaven. Um, you touch it and now it's yours. And so you can never get rid of it. Um, and and this, is, this is why I have 12 watts, right? I just can't- if you touched it, it probably doesn't have three inches of dust on it. That's so true. That's true. Parking joy. <laughs> I, do clean, I do clean the office, but is it necessary? Is it functional? Maybe not. And so there's that inventory control process, but also some of that parallel in your educational experience where you're deriving value from a lot of research and a lot of practical knowledge about clinicals. Um, advocacy is, is something, these advocacy clinics is something that's taken off in law schools. Clearly, nursing and, and medical students do rounds or residencies to have those clinical experiences and really apply those lessons, understand the contextual elements, understand um, how these theoretical concepts or cerebral concepts, as you mentioned, how they're applied in the real world. So I, I think that's valuable. Especially um, for you who are a teacher, because to think and theorize about how you are going to teach is so very different than being in front of your students and actually trying to teach them something. I have started to develop more structure in my lectures because the improvisational uh, enjoyment does not translate to their enjoyment many times when I stray too far afield of the syllabus's agenda. I don't know why. I don't know why they want to learn what I've said that they're going to learn, um, but they're, they're bullies that way. And they ask things like, is this on the test? Right, right. Uh -huh. So I, th I do think that that the inventory control going out there, that, but but so tying in some of the lessons that you learned, some of the practical understanding and evolution of your education, to waiting five years to get a job, was the master's degree worth it? Well, if I hadn't had the master's degree, I would still be waiting for the job because I had to have it in order to get tired, hired. And even when I got hired for the library system, it was not the dream job. It was part-time on the weekend circulation. That was not children's librarian where I am now doing reference and programming, but it was my foot in the door. Sometimes you just have to get your foot in the door. And once they meet you and they know you and they see that you are willing and able and excited, then those promotions can happen. But if they don't know you, if they're not willing to take a risk on you, then I'd, well, if they weren't willing to take a risk on me, I would still be probably working at the bank. <laughs> and without internships, I mean, so three, three questions I like to pose for hiring are, can you do the work? Will you do the work and will you fit in? And without an internship or a pre-existing relationship, to your point, the, the only way to show the employer that you are, will fit in, that you're not only a knowledgeable resource for the work, but also someone who isn't going to be in the Title IX office every Thursday or, or, or filing you know, claims um, on a weekly basis to disrupt the routine. So that was an opportunity, but oh, you, you had to wait five years. Are, are there any techniques that you, you would suggest for others to sort of manage what many of us suffer from, which is this need for instant gratification, right? We want it now. I've got oh. this law degree. I need to be the CEO or the COO tomorrow. No, no. It was five horribly frustrating years. 
I, I wanted the instant gratification. I walked into the library on my very first day in North Carolina and said, Ta-da, I am here. And they said, please don't make that loud noise in the library. Story time is going on. <laughs> You're distracting. <laughs> um, it was very difficult. It was very frustrating. I got down a lot, but you know, life goes on. And there were many other parts of my life that were very exciting and wonderful at that time. I was getting married, then I was a newlywed, then I had my son. So, so many good things, but I never gave up because I knew that eventually there was, they were going to have to start hiring people, people who were working for the library at that time that wanted to retire would not retire because they knew that there was a hiring freeze and people were not going to get hired. So once I found out that the the hiring freeze had ended, people started retiring and then it was like game on. So I had my resume ready. It was always polished. It was always ready. And the way I found out about my first job at this library, I had joined a ukulele group. I always wanted <laughs> to learn how to play the ukulele. So when I moved to North Carolina and I only knew my then fiance, now husband, I thought I will make friends by learning how to play the ukulele. And um, not to brag, but I do know five songs now by heart. And <laughs> so, so I met a friend, her name's Susan, and she was looking for other jobs for herself too. And she found this library job and she texts me at, 10 o'clock at night and says, this job just went up and it says it's gonna close in two hours. The job was only up for six hours. That's how quickly the hiring period was for applications. Yeah. So I had two hours to send it. I'm, I was ready. I filled out that application. I sent in my resume. I was ready. I was always ready. <laughs> and when I got the interview and went in, I, I was prepared. It was five years of, of knowing eventually it had to happen, but it was frustrating. So no, I don't have any advice on instant gratification that if I want something, I'm going to eat the Almond Joy. I'm going to eat the Hershey bar. <laughs> if I want to see the movie, I'm probably going to get HBO or Netflix or whatever. I, I no, I, I want it and I want it now. <laughs> it's your money. You need it now. I get it. I get it. I get That's it. Right. That's right. Those plugs, right? If I can't have it, then I'm going to probably stomp around the house. <laughs> That's a healthy way to vent. Until someone goes, stop doing that. What do you want? Here, you can have it. Thank you. It's like I being a your husband. He's definitely someone I look up to. Um, I, oh, well, that's because he's tall. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think, I, I think that there's, there, again, there's so much to review in, in those ideas because one idea is perseverance sticking with it, every day above ground is, is another day to achieve or improve, and another day for a possibility. There's the idea of um, preparedness. So, so perseverance and preparedness where you are always ready. Um, and so the Boy Scout motto is be prepared. Yes. And if you're not, you know, if you think about, for example, Secret Service, right? I mean, their job is to protect some of the most um, influential people in the world. Um, not only people immediately from the president, but they, they protect visiting dignitaries and so forth. And if they say, well, the last time the president was shot was on Reagan, that's uh, many years ago, as we know, <laughs> and, and it's, it's personal for us. Um, and they just see Twinkies all day because 
it hasn't happened and then there's an active shooter or a threat to one of these dignitaries and they're like oh i'm gonna go to the gym now to get in shape for this threat that exists immediately no you don't have that time you have to always be uh in peak physical condition continuously training learning updating yourself and i think that's an essential aspect that if people get down on themselves or, or lack that perseverance, the preparedness can suffer because they say, well, what's the point? It's been two years, it's been three years, but it took you five years. And you and when, when you had six hours, really two hours of the six, you were ready. I was ready. Carpe diem. Or as the young people say, YOLO. Oh, yeah. So, so I, I, I mean, I hear a lot of valuable reminders in there, but also a positive sense of encouragement because it did come to fruition. It did come to pass that you were able to land this job that you enjoyed. Um, and, I, and, and within that, I wonder what sort of next steps do you, do you anticipate? And then how do you remain current and prepared for that next opportunity? Are there continuing education hours that you take? Are there um, training courses that you avail yourself of online or, or not, maybe not in person in the current time frame? There, for librarians, we are a community of people that love to learn. So we are constantly teaching each other. We build webinars and we do podcasts and anything to communicate with each other. We want to share. We want everyone to know what we know. I've, I've nicknamed librarians pirates on the information sea because we will steal information and what do we do with it? We just, well, maybe we're like Robin Hood. We just give it away. Right. We want everybody to know everything. And uh, because the profession has that culture, we're constantly learning and we're constantly building things to teach. So it's a wonderful profession. My brain is always always learning and and people come into the library and they ask questions that I never would have thought of and then I get to research them and point them in the right direction you want to know about glass spiders I don't even know what that is but I'm gonna find out and we're gonna go look it up and we're gonna we're gonna get you the information that you need and um so it's it's one of those professions where you just keep learning all the time. And with the unfortunate COVID, so much of it has gone online. So it's really more accessible than it ever was before. So now if I want a webinar on whatever, I can pretty much call one up on demand and watch it when I need it, which is awesome. Some of the technological things. Before we move into what you think maybe some of the future aspects of your career though, one of the words that you used is culture. And I found it fascinating when you mentioned the motivation for the employment retention of some of these retirement eligible employees, right? So I tend to be uh, pragmatic, which others might call cynical. And I think these folks don't retire or just go to meet their maker to antagonize me, right? They are <laughs> clinging to life with their antiquated ideas and atavistic practices solely to give me grief and, and attempt to give this beautiful mane of hair a single solitary inaugural gray that I have been avoiding for several decades. And, and you mentioned something that we maybe see in a parallel in the Supreme Court of the United States where SCOTUS judges say, I'm gonna hold on until the next administration because my political ideology won't be served if I retire 
and they appoint somebody else. And so in your case, these folks' motivation was the hiring freeze um, and their actual love of, of this ability to imbue knowledge on others and share this craft. And so rather than uh, leave, which they immediately did once the hiring freeze was lifted, they protected the entity. Um, they protected this uh, vision of um, professionals providing information for people in the community. And I wonder about this culture. I mean, could you, what, what, what do you learn about this culture? How did you acclimate to the culture? How have you grown in the culture? And then, go. These particular librarians that waited, not only did they wait, after the hiring freeze, they announced their retirement and then they stayed on to help train their replacements so that the new people coming in knew where everything was and how things ran. And for me personally, when I come into a job, I want to know how everything runs the way the people who are already there do it. And then I wait a year and I start making changes. But, <laughs> <laughs> but that's, I think that's a gift. That's, um, a very generous spirit that wants to share this is how we do it um, this is what's worked for us and we've been doing this for a long time so we think we know what's best and then of course me with my fresh eyes I know better right. but um, it's librarianship in general is just it's it's cool it's just cool um, every year we have a big conference that the American Library Association puts on they have a, a big summer conference at the annual and then in the winter there's a mid mid-year conference I can't tell you how many people come to this it's bananas and it's full of people that are just as gaga crazy about librarianship as I am and some of them are, are children's librarians like me and um, we've got people from academic, Libraries, history libraries. I mean, there's so many different types of libraries and we're all there and we're all, it's like going to camp. It's cool. And we get to meet all these different publishers and booksellers and authors and providers of book robots and bookmobiles and whatever. I mean, you name it, we, we get to enjoy it for several days. And the thing that I always take away is that I am not unique in this field. People are just as nutty as me all over this. <laughs> We're all equally, ex well, I hope, but um, many of us are equally excited about learning and sharing and education and passing the torch along. And as a children's librarian, who's my target audience? Kids. So when they come in the library, I am hello, welcome to the library, how may I help you? And they're like, oh, oh my goodness, you know, we haven't been anywhere in months because of COVID and you need to keep your six feet, lady. So, <laughs> but that's, that's the job. That's, and that's exciting. And, and so within that culture, I, I mean, I fully agree with you. And it's difficult to say that when you're getting hired, right? I actually plan on doing no changes or innovation for a year. Uh, hiring managers don't seem to have the mental fortitude uh, to, to appreciate that two ears, one mouth concept where you go in, you listen, you observe for a year, and then you incrementally in implement changes while recognizing that there may be a reason or underlying motivation for a past practice or behavior 
that you don't understand. Um, and these ideas can, can run afoul of, of common sense and best practices when you just jump right in and say, oh, I'm gonna do it my way, without, again, without that understanding of the culture, without understanding the root goals, without understanding some of those policies and, and, and procedures that may be in place for, that are motivators for why people do or do not do certain things. And, and so I think that's very wise on your part but, but then you go to these conferences, you avail yourself of networking opportunities. How does that help you grow? And how do you best access the knowledge and resources other than just going and sitting in a room, right? You fly to a conference, you have some great meals paid for by the state, at least I do. Um, and, and that's what I do when I go to government, you know, government sponsored conferences. And what do you do to make sure that you're meeting the, the colleagues that can help you grow? What do you do to make sure that you're really learning the most and maximizing experience? All right, I'll give you an example. So I went to a conference in Chicago and I took the train in from my folks house and then took the bus to the convention center. And I'm on the bus and it's early in the morning and people have traveled and everyone's sitting there with their lattes, checking their phones, and it's quiet. And this lady comes in, and this is the library bus. We all know that we are on there going to this convention together. And this lady comes in and sits next to me. And you think I'm gonna let this poor woman just sit there and enjoy her coffee? No, no, no. I, where are you from? What are you doing? And she says, oh, I'm from Atlanta, Georgia, and it's, um." wonderful to have a break from summer reading and bananas unite. And I said, excuse me, bananas unite? Oh, well, I'm a children's librarian. Well, I am too, but I've never heard of bananas unite. I kid you not, Dietrich, this wonderful woman got out of her seat in the front of the bus filled with how many people and did Bananas Unite, which if you don't know it, is Bananas Unite, you got to peel, banana, peel, peel, banana. And, and this goes on and I'm like, oh my gosh, I've never heard this before. I get out my notebook and my pencil and I'm like, you know what, let me just use my phone, I'm gonna record you. And when I went back to my library, story time, hey, guess what kids, we're gonna do Bananas Unite and it went, bananas. Now we have four library branches and everybody knows the bananas and some of them do it and some of them don't, but it's all right. I mean, when you go to these events, if you sit there quietly and drink your coffee, you might miss the opportunity to learn Bananas Unite. You gotta meet people, you gotta mingle, you have to go to the social events. I went with my mother to one of these, we went to Philadelphia. We tried a beer we had never heard of. It was called Yingling. Uh -huh. We met so many people. We learned all about these databases of technology that we had never encountered before. Next year, big rollout at our library. We already knew how to use it. Oh yeah, <laughs> we were the teachers. It was great. So go to the conference, go to the lectures. You're gonna get something out of it, but talk to people. Meet people. It's okay. And if you make a fool of yourself, they probably won't remember. I don't remember the name of that fabulous librarian on the bus. So she can't be embarrassed. But I remember Bananas Unite. No, I, and that's that's an important lesson. Not about the beers, because members of the bar. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Which is not spelled how you would think it would be spelled. Um, 
it's a decent beer. But there are those lessons, um, and, and I, I mentioned to my students, some of the, the opportunities that I've had are because I'm the only person without gray hair on the elevator who isn't glued to my screen. And when someone comes in, that basic courtesy uh, that, that was instilled and insisted upon by Patsy Ann um, to, to greet people, uh, and we saw this with the, the current secretary of the uh, housing and urban, de urban development, uh, when she opened her uh, news conference and said good morning and people didn't respond. And you could see in her expression, where is your home training people? Were you raised in a barn? To which brothel do I need to address this, <laughs> this very chastising uh, commentary on your upbringing? And so um, we have that courtesy. And I wonder you know, how we make sure that people understand the differences between uh, courtesy. So that, that's a challenge too. Sometimes people just don't even know how to respond to it anymore because we're so used to and reinforce with, with Zoom and, and other digital tools that during the pandemic, this digital barrier, this, this screen divide where uh, greeting strangers is, is even more prohibit, prohibited than when we were children. And so to say good morning could, could elicit a response of confusion or why are you talking to me as opposed to what it should, which is, wow, you also had decent parents who raised you in a manner of, uh, of courteous, courteous interaction. But, but, but to get those opportunities, because I'm the only one not looking at my screen, I say good morning, and somebody's like, hey, the governor's got this job on a council. Well, I'm on an elevator with 15 lawyers. I'm the only one that gets offered the, the gig because I said hello. Bananas unite. Unite. <laughs> so um, I, I think that's, that's so impactful and, and that human connection that's necessary. Sociologists know this, psychologists know this, and what, yet we still ignore the research and practical knowledge that we have about human beings as creatures um, to do that. So the networking, you learn something new, you applied it. Did you apply it in the exact manner that it was presented or did you modify it? I modified it. Because quite frankly, I couldn't get my phone to record her, so I couldn't remember everything. Right. So I had, do, <laughs> I had to do it my own way. And that's all right. I do, I'll, I march to my own drummer sometimes. But um, with story time, the little children march with me. So that's all right. I've had parents and grandparents tell me that they are not afraid to sing to their children because they've heard me sing and my voice is so horrendous and yet so loud. So <laughs> if I can do it, they can do it too. That's a positive encouragement, right? You're, you're, you can't be any worse at this than I am. Go for it, be confident. Yeah, and I'm the expert. Maybe my next class should be a singing class. I will have to look into that subject them to that. But hobbies, I think it's it's important to recognize as well that some of these connections and lessons come from hobbies. It's not that you have to do something onerous or burdensome. You're doing something you enjoy, but in a sense of community, in a, in a networking scenario that it, it allows you to meet new people. So whether it be learning the ukulele or piano lessons, uh, one of the classes that my friends have, have, have commented really benefited them. A couple of my friends who are litigators, that is attorneys who present in the courtroom, it's almost like stage actors uh, and business professionals is improvisational class. And they said they, they took it just because they thought it would be interesting 
and it's helped their profession, it's helped their confidence, it's helped their ability to communicate effectively, quickly, succinctly. I don't do anything quickly or succinctly because lawyers go by the word. So if you're too brief, you lose money. Um, but, but understanding that, understanding and appreciating that. So I, I really like that lesson of meeting people, uh, gambling a little bit, taking a chance on, on possibly being embarrassed or taking a chance on someone rejecting that overture of kindness, but it paying dividends in the long run. So you go to these conferences, you learn things through CLEs and, and training programs. What about other levels of educational attainment? Would you consider getting a doctoral degree? Why or why not? Oh, Dr. Jamie. Well, I don't want people to page me. Paging, <laughs> thank, thank you, thank you. Um, <laughs> My students don't know what a pager is. I'm gonna have to- Oh, okay, okay. Oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> I'm 21, so I don't know why I would either. And um, I, I, I briefly thought about getting a doctorate because I thought, it would be something to do <laughs> while I was searching for a job. But you know what I was afraid of while I was job searching for those long five years was putting so many things behind my name that no one would hire me because I was too fabulous and that they would be afraid that I would leave at a moment's notice for something better. So that kind of stopped me from getting the doctorate. Now, would I think about it now that I am secure in my position? Totally, I love school. I would, I would, yeah, it would be fun. Although for me, um, living out here in North Carolina, there aren't any in-person doctorate programs. And as much as I enjoy webinars for higher learning, I need that in-person. It motivates me to have classmates that I can talk to and entertain. <laughs> so, so I might have to wait until geographical differences, but I have no plans of leaving North Carolina. But um, would I learn something else? I think so. I would love to take some culinary classes because I love to eat. And the things I make are not delicious. But they could be. So, <laughs> so I'd like to learn other things. And then if I became a better chef, would I bring that back into the library? You betcha. We would do cooking classes. Have I learned to play the ukulele? Five songs? Yes. Do I bring the ukulele into the library? Definitely. So these funny little things that I am interested in, does it come to work with me? Most likely. Yeah. That's, that's valuable. And, and I've had this discussion with a few people one of the challenges that you highlighted is getting, I, I like to be a better to have it and not need it than need it and not have it person. And so I have excluded uh, credentialing or experiences from my resume in the past so that I was not overwhelming to the interviewers or the hiring committee where uh, maybe I'm actually more impressive than they are. And so I sort of redact my resume and say, I don't want your job. But if you just say that, then that, that's an immediate signal. I want your job, right? So rather than Right, express the thing that you just remove it. Um, but that after five years, I wanted any job, any job, <laughs> any of these. <laughs> but that progression where you say, "Wow, if I got a PhD, for example, in in our educational sphere, and you were uh, you didn't have any real life experience, and you didn't have the requisite years of experience," I argue this is an antiquated question anyway. But we'll move past that. 
um, many hiring managers still look at that. And so you have no user experience with a PhD and you end up being a, a resident uh, assistant type role, you know, maybe with a manager, but you don't move immediately into an assistant dean role or um, a, a dean of a college or a VP role just because you have the credential because you don't have the requisite years of experience in someone's mind. And so that progression allows you to gain the experience with the master's degree. And then five to seven years later, once you've seen a few title promotions or, or not, but you gained experience, then going back for the PhD. Um, it's, and it's a balance too, when you look at the factors and you say, for many PhD programs, there's a teaching assistant stipend, maybe you make between 30 and $50,000 a year, um, but you take on no debt versus certain professional programs or medical doctorate programs where um, you're out of the workforce for four plus years and you are paying uh, or at least deferring a payment in the form of a loan. And, and what are the ROI on those two things? What, you know, what are the um, values that each provides? And making that individual assessment, being able to sort of introspectively and then environmentally look at the situation and say, am I really going to be happy if I graduate with this credential, but I'm $50,000 in debt? Um, or if I graduate with no debt, but I've only made $30,000 a year teaching uh, as a teacher's assistant doing this PhD, will I be happy with that? Um, so I think that's a personal uh, sort of journey and, and, and questionnaire, but it's food for thought. And if you got the degree, would you make the money in the future? Is it an, a good investment or not? That's a challenge, right? Because if you have a PhD in, in basket weaving, maybe the, the salary is only 30000 a year. And so you may as well just stay a teaching assistant forever because <laughs> it's just as good as a wage. But uh, I would do a library program on basket weaving. That would be good. <laughs> What are some of the skills that you wish you had improved on more uh, in, your, in your learning or in your, in your CEUs to better perform your job? And then what are some of the skills broadly? I mean, you're a librarian, you interact with a number of people from different dem demographics, different life goals. Um, what are some of the, the skills that you've utilized or would like to use more? And then what would you see going forward? What technologies or, or tools or techniques do you think people should really learn to be effective contributors in the workforce. Well, for me personally, um, I think we did touch on the singing. That would have been helpful. <laughs> uh, when the library closed and they sent me home but said, we still want you to do library programs, things like setting up a set, knowing how to work a camera and posting things and being able to keep track of all my social media and all my followers. You know, there was a learning curve on all of that. And that would have been good to have some something going in. When my husband filmed one of my classic story time challenges from home and we looked at it and he said, you look like Skeletor, you need to put on some blush. You know, like, mm, well, who knew that drag queen makeup was going to be necessary for doing a story time from home? I didn't. So <laughs> But I learned, you, you learn as you go. So um, technology, well, you know, whatever I say to, today will be outdated tomorrow because that world is revol evolving 
so very, very quickly. When eBooks first came out, we thought this is, no one's gonna ever want this. This is horrendous. You have to download the book to your computer. You have to have this special device. You have to have a wire where you put the book somehow magically through the wire and into your device. And then it is there for all eternity, eating up all of your data and storage. Who is gonna want this? Nobody's gonna take this to the beach. Terrible. So um, now I look at eBooks, I, I use them all the time. I download them to my phone and I listen to audios and it takes me a few seconds to start enjoying a book. It's so different. Things happen so quickly. And the interesting thing about the library world is that we are the information technology specialists. So if you don't have the money to go to wherever to learn these things, where do you go? You go to the library. Because chances are the librarian, whether he or she knows how to use the device, is going to be game to try. And we've seen enough things that we have a little bit of an understanding of where we need to go to get from point A to point B to have you happy. So that's, I, I don't know where it's going, but I am gonna be along for the ride and I'm gonna have to learn it on the fly for each and every person that comes in and that's just fine. One of the things I have learned is if you have a smile on your face and a little humor in your voice and you can say, I, I don't know, but let's give it a try because if I press this button, I'm pretty sure it won't blow up. <laughs> I haven't had anything blow up on me yet. So, you know, that just builds my confidence. But I, I think about what you just said too as well. When I encounter people who are not what I would perceive of as successful, and I don't just mean monetarily, but I mean just generally, they're not satisfied with their own uh, ability to reach, to, to reach or, or meet their goals. And there are distinct categories of people who are rude yet competent or incompetent yet pleasant that are usually permitted to exist in the workforce. <laughs> um, and then you've got the people that you need to discard and those are the people who don't greet you with a smile and they are incompetent. <laughs> um, and, and Stay employed. Right, right. Oh, you're like in government. Yes. All <laughs> but, but that idea of, of recognizing the culture, recognizing yourself and then creating an environment of positivity towards your advancement, I think it's definitely a professional lesson and I think it applies in schools. I think it applies to group work as students try to form groups to work on projects, uh, understanding how courtesy goes a long way or, or mutual respect. Uh, and then really just appreciating the, the differences um, in, in each other without um, just generally having a, a, a dour attitude towards the need to change. Just accepting it and saying that nothing is going to remain constant. Change is inevitable. How do I embrace it? How do I sort of adapt or acclimate without becoming resentful? And it seems like you've done that, which is, which is awesome. Uh, and really being able to appreciate, hey, technology today is not technology tomorrow. Skills today may need to be updated tomorrow. How do we appreciate it? Different ways, but we can do it with a smile on our faces. Um, and we can really move forward um, in a positive way with the encouragement of others, especially, uh, and, and with that go-getter attitude that's inherent. 
in the library world, we are big fans of surveys. We're constantly asking our patrons to rate this, that, and the other thing. And one of the things that is always so highly rated on surveys is staff. You know, if the community likes their library, you, you will see it in these surveys, it's glowing. Um, you think of the library, maybe you think of a building, maybe you think of a collection of books, but if you're going in regularly and you're having interactions with the people, you might think of the library, you might think of your librarian. Mm -hmm. And as that's how I want people to think of me. When I do my goofy story times, I want kids to think books are fun. Look at her, she's having fun. A story is a good time. So yeah, I'm a person, I'm learning like everybody else. I don't know everything, I'm not the expert, um, but, I'm along for the ride and I'll, I'll do my best to get you what you need. And um, I will be the face, you know? Hopefully the smiling face. You can't see it now, I'm wearing a mask. But usually I am the smiling face. And I think when, even when you don't get what you want, if someone is kind to you and you can see that they're trying their best, you still leave with a good experience. I think that is, I think that's very important. Um, and, and to know, how to apply that, how to continuously challenge yourself, even when you're a little bit frustrated, when you're a little bit tired or hungry or whatever, to maintain that positive uh, visage and say, here's what we're projecting for others, it's helpfulness, and understanding your market, right? Understanding what it is you're selling. Yeah. Because a lot of people get fixated on a product or a brand and don't realize what it is they are actually selling. So true, so true. When I worked at the bank, I used to pretend to be a bank teller. I thought, I am not a bank teller. This is this is not my heart. This is not my passion. This is not even what I'm really good at. Um, so I would pretend, okay, this is my role. Today, I am Jamie the bank teller. Hello, and welcome to, and you know, I did win teller of the year. My last year there, they sent me to Boca Raton. It was wonderful. I had a day of spa and massage. And I thought to myself, I don't like this job, but boy, am I a great actress. I have them all fooled. They think I'm a great bank teller. And I think when people are down, because of course we all get down, if you tell yourself, yeah, I'm down, but I need to grab myself up by the bootstraps, I'm going to put on this role and I am going to pretend that I am the best student or the best employee just for the day, just see if you can get through the day. And you might discover that playing that role becomes part of who you are. Yes, yeah, so fake it until you make it. The fake, oh yes, that's it, that's it. See, you put it succinctly. I'm only paying you $3 for that. Oh no, oh no. <laughs> Yes, that's what I meant. Make it till you make it. But let the smile be genuine. It, and, it, and it should be. I mean, one of the challenges that I think um, people have is remaining grateful in the, in the face of adversity. But for many of us, particularly uh, first-gen kids like you or me, we appreciate the struggles of our parents in a way that being able to breathe is a blessing. Being able to go to work and have gainful employment is a position of fortune. Um, being able to, to know that there is food in the refrigerator is, is such um, a position of power that it's difficult many days, even when 
you know, this would never happen here, but even when you've got PhDs sending reply all emails throughout the night, um, you still say, you know, this is pretty goofy. Um, they should know better as adults with, with advanced uh, doctoral degree. They don't. It's not my problem. And what a great place to work. I've got, I've got health insurance. I've got a roof over my head when I go home. And so to, to accept that role, to create a challenge where it's, it's even a game and say, okay, today I am mid-level manager so-and-so. And to, to say, I'm going to do this until I'm the CEO or, or C-suite, I think is, I think that's a pretty cool technique that other people could adapt to say, yeah, I'm going to try this out and, and uh, try to at least take more ownership of the positivity of my environment. Yeah, because nobody's going to feel bad, just you. But you know, you did bring up a very good point about being first generation, but more importantly, generations. And that you and I are very, very fortunate that we came from wonderful supportive families and we have found people in our lives to befriend and that are also really great and supportive. So those four, five tough years at the bank, I had still my friends and my family and people that knew that things will get better. It's all right. So, you know, that's very lucky and I wish that for everyone. That, that is a point, and, and one of the things that my students might encounter, aside from whether or not to go to graduate school or whether or not to move to a different city, what, are, what resources does it take to do that if you can't dig up someone uh, to accept <laughs> mailed packages uh, from, from out of state? All about networking. Right. Networking, building that sense of community, maintaining those friendships, being authentic. Um, and, and oh I, yeah, because it's so hard to keep track of the lies. If you just tell the truth, you only have to remember the one. <laughs> it's true, and and within that authenticity, though, I find um, people associate without a recognition of the long-term implications of those associations, and that age-old adage, right, that survived the test of time because it remains true. Birds of a feather, and you think to yourself man, I'm, I'm hanging around with these pigeons, but I want to be an eagle. Now, if you want to be a pigeon, that's fantastic. You want to be a falcon, a hawk, a, I don't know all the types of birds that I can name, I can list them. But if you want to be an eagle, then associate with eagles and you are so authentic. And it's a, I have seen uh, sort of people struggle with this. And I don't know if you have any experience or, or perspective on this, but I've seen people struggle because they want to be, an eagle, whether that be an Instagram influencer or a top chef or whatever. And so they inauthentically fabricate networks with people who are in those social media clubs or in the, the restaurants. And they never really realize the returns on investment of time, energy, and, and emotion because they didn't authentically or transparently enter into those engagements. And so some of that introspective battle is saying, I know that I need to associate with these people or more people of this demographic to get to the place I want to be, but I don't want to do it just in the sense of being a user or, or someone who is only out to get. Um, so other than being a giver and then you get what you get back, do you have any perspective or, or thoughts on how people can authentically build these friendships and, and remote romantic and other support relationships while also not settling? 
Well, you know, I'm so grateful that you mentioned the part about being a giver, because for a moment I was noticing the hypocrisy of us saying, fake it till you make it, and then be authentic. <laughs> Wait a minute, aren't we talking about both sides of the coin? <laughs> but if you're talking about fake it till you make it and be genuine to wanting to give of yourself, I think that those two parallels could live together. I do, I do. Um, and, you know, uh, going back to my beloved roommate and bestest friend, whom we are still best friends, even after taking a year apart, um, it, would, it, it was me. I was, I was difficult to live with. And so reaching out and being kind and having it not all about me, that helps. So I think when you want to be part of these different circles and you are introducing yourself, be friendly. Be interested in other people. One of the best ways to create friends and to create social networks is to get to know other people. So right now I am talking and talking and talking, but I am the one being interviewed, so that's appropriate. But otherwise, I would want to listen and hear from you so that I can learn more about you and make you important because you are important, Dietrich. <laughs> you must know that I have a 35 member police force that will go assert my importance on command. So yeah, that's a good You point. are the hardest working man in government. So. <laughs> I, but, yeah. I, so, I, other <laughs> I'm done, I'm done giggling now. No, that, I, I think, I think Going back as well and, and being able to admit wrongs and, and apologize, I think being able to apologize, accepting uh, erroneous decision-making or actions, uh, that sense of ownership is appreciable by others. I think that has, has served me well as it seems to have served you. Being able to accept people where they are, um, that idea that people can only give you what they have uh, was covered in one of my talks with Juan Samuel, who's chief of staff for a very prominent House of Representatives member, some people just don't have it to give. Yeah. And so not expecting that of them and giving what you can without giving too much, right? So that old saying, we're going back to these sayings, I, I, we're really telling our age. <laughs> it's so cliche. Right. You're only 21, but neither borrower nor lender be. Um, don't the lend Hamlet. Right. <laughs> Don't, don't give somebody something that you have to have back without resenting them, because then you're creating a scenario or a situation where you've created that resentment by not um, adhering to those accepted principles of, if you're going to be a, a generous giver, give. If it's a gift, don't control the, the mechanism. And the same thing with your time, your energy, your attention. If you're giving it, give it. And don't bill me later. Uh, the, the invoice is in the mail. The invoice, <laughs> yeah, the, invo the invoice left before, before, I, before I even started recording. <laughs> My postal service is a little slow, so I'll probably get it sometime next month. <laughs> don't hold your breath. The, um, the topic of, of career path, I don't think we've, we've really delved into this, but Briefly, because I don't want to take too much more of your time. 
how did you choose your career path? Did your career path choose you? And on this journey, what are some of the things that you think would be universally applicable to do or not do were you to do this over or offer people lessons from your hindsight? Okay, so when I was 15 years old, my mother drove me to the library that she worked at and said, you are here for a job interview, go get it. And so I did. <laughs> and when I went to college and tried my hand at teaching and discovered that I could not survive on a teacher's paycheck because I was very hungry, and I think we've mentioned my love of eating, I went back to Illinois and worked at that same library and they were very generous and helped me pay for my master's while I worked. And uh, so I think what we're getting to here is that it was all my mother. If it hadn't have been for her. <laughs> oh, did I mention she introduced me to my husband? Yeah. yeah. So um, uh, perhaps a very influential person okay. <laughs> in my life. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's a great thing. I think people that love you know you very well and are excellent people to guide you and offer suggestion. If you don't know what you should be doing, maybe you should ask someone that loves you what you should be doing and they might be able to help you because they love you. They want the best for you. So I, I, I'm very grateful to my mother <laughs> and my father too, of course. But um, that, that would mean my advice is, is ask the people around you that love and care for you for a suggestion. Right. And, and you have an emotional point with that, which is that, that love and care, but I would add to that pragmatically, your eyes, you have two eyes that look outward. So to some degree, even though it runs afoul of the biblical parallel, it is easier to help someone get the log uh, or the splinter out of their, their eye than the log out of your own eye because you, the, the perception is different. So you, well, that's you, look, so true. you that's look outward. And so people that have been observing you, particularly for your entire life, um, they may have a per perception of you that isn't deluded by our own biases or, or, or self-delusion, right? Uh, where you say, man, I'm, I'm a really good singer. <laughs> like Ethel Merman. Oh, right. no. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, maybe, maybe some folks can help you with that um, uh, and sort of bring that reality check or the cold, hard cash of truth. So, <laughs> It, uh, it does make a difference to get that advice, but that still ties back into the networking and building a sense of community, building that support system that can reality check you, can offer because, you those things. Yeah. Yeah, in my case, it was my mother, but for other people, it's a mentor, a teacher at school, a counselor. We have so many relationships in our lives. And if you look around at who really cares for you, I hope you're lucky and you discover that there's lots. We have so many relationships. I don't, I, I do not have any, I'm monogamous. There are no relationships. So, um, well, know, well, romantically. I oh, don't. okay, okay. I, well, me and my millions of husbands, I shouldn't speak. <laughs> bigger me, bigger you, whatever. So. <laughs> and, and, and so you go through this journey and then you, you start making choices. Are there any work-life balance suggestions that you have for people that you think are pretty universally applicable? Do you think, gosh, um, you know, and, and as you know, my brother and his wife, they started having children very young. And then my sister had children sort of in the age appropriate category of 
multiple degrees earned by both spouses um, in, in, in you know, earning jobs. And both of them seem to have enjoyed success in raising their families. So like my sister in San Antonio has two um, attractive, smart, motivated children. My brother has seven smart- And grandbabies. Right, and grand, grand, two grandbabies now. And, right. and, they, and their environments though, they didn't follow, he and his wife didn't follow that traditional path. And so it seems like there isn't a recipe or a, a shoe that fits everybody, right? Or, or one size fits all proposition. No, because so, we're all so different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, for me personally, when I struggle with the professional and the personal balance, then I just assign blame to the feminists. <laughs> they told me I could have it all. They're a bunch of liars. You can't. You can't. <laughs> Something's going to have to give. <laughs> you, you realize that in the world of sexism, there are truisms one of which is men are pretty useless. And so you, you're you all single parent households. So yeah, sorry. Oh, it's not too. No, no. Richie my, does cook. Richie does no, cook well. Oh my gosh. And he does so much grocery shopping, <laughs> which is good because otherwise he'd open the cupboard and be like, why do we only have chocolate, Jamie? I don't know. <laughs> what did you want to eat? Uh, <laughs> Richie's wonderful, wonderful. Um, but I don't, I, I, I don't know how people do it. I don't know. I'm work-life balance, it's exhausting. And if someone tells you you can have it all, you should just, what, slap them? No, that'd be assault. <laughs> be my epitome. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how people do it. I don't. And I imagine how they do it. And it makes me tired. And then I take a nap. Yeah, no, I have no advice whatsoever. If someone has advice for me, please let me know. <laughs> right. <laughs> checks payable too. Uh, yeah, win the lotto. That would be great. <laughs> right. Fun for additional household uh, labor uh, support, right? Yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, maybe that would have a staff, maid, butler, chef. I don't know. But that, that's, a, that's a challenge that we run into in the, in the pandemic environment where we, where we have people working remotely and my support staff, I, 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 for my city council roles, I have a very talented, dynamic city secretary here at the college. We have a very thorough, um, mili- almost militaristic department of business administrator. She makes sure that everything's running. She'll send me an email. Dietrich, you didn't make enough money this month to go to St. Arnold's more than twice. You can go to Flying Saucer once, you can go to St. Arnold's once, and that's it, right? And a, an administrative assistant who's just a, a bright, shining light for the department, they're not here. And so I had to learn what collating papers was. I had to learn how to use the staple function within the copier myself. And so one of the challenges that we've had in our disconnect um, from our social groupings is um, a, a safe and health and hygienic distancing from uh, those support resources. And, and that's gonna be something that I think as people look at public health concerns in the future, that we are going to have to reevaluate regardless of your profession, sort of universally look at what support systems you are able to access and, and have with some sort of regularity without families. Because that's one of the great things about family is, um, and I'm coming back to something related to you where when you do need help, maybe if, in a pandemic environment, you had a house cleaner 
or, or support staff at home, you have to let them go or not have them as often to create a safe environment. But when your parents come in, when family comes in, they're able to assist you with childcare, house cleaning, cooking, whatever uh, those, those job balancing or division of labor aspects are without those same concerns. If only I was easier to live with, I could get my parents to just move closer. <sighs> Put it on the to-do list. It's, it's, it's fascinating, but, but I think a lot of what, what I've derived from speaking with you today, and I do thank you for your time, is, is this importance of community, the importance of authenticity, kindness, um, be kind, be, be supportive of others, and that comes back to you in dividends, and, and, I, and I, just can, I can think of a thousand examples in my own life that reinforce what you've said today, uh, including those ideas of you know, I watch how my father is treated at the VA when he's admitted for a surgery or something versus the veterans who don't have family. Um, he gets a lot more attention from those nurses and doctors who see that somebody is watching. There is third party oversight here. And if it goes astray, there are witnesses to your neglect, mistreatment or whatever. So they don't do it. They, they check on, on, on him regularly. Um, and, and I watch them come in to assist the Great Wolf uh, in, his, in his duties. Uh, <laughs> um, figuratively and literally, and then for other other veterans there, maybe they yell a response from their from their desk. And so that importance of community and support, where there's that oversight, where there's that building um, that we we need to continue to aspire to and reinforce in our lives. That was very nicely said. Well, what are your closing thoughts before we wrap up? I'm hungry. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Dietrich, thank you. I'm, I, I don't know uh, if your listeners will have enjoyed listening to my rambles, but it was really a pleasure talking uh, with you. Unfortunately, I don't get to see your beautiful artwork uh, and enjoy, enjoy your great smile, but they will be able to appreciate some of those personal and, and resonating life experiences, such as moving to a different state, figuring out what to do with your life, and, um, and then being patient with your career. Well, good luck, everyone. We're all in it together. All right. Well, thank you, Jamie Van Aukenstrom, M-L-I-S, for your time today. Oh, you're welcome, Dietrich. Anytime.